0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I want you to imagine yourself in the White House in 1982, with Reagan as president. Yourself and Reagan and the other advisors are all sitting around in the Oval Office, deliberating on what to do about a resurgent Soviet Union one whose military is rapidly growing, and war seems closer than ever. Amongst the deliberations, a treasury advisor peeps up and suggests economic sanctions, that if we cut the Soviets off from foreign currency avenues, they'll have less money to spend on tanks and bombs and nuclear weapons, and therefore easier to defeat. It's a brilliant idea, and the table begins to think on how they can carry this out. One of Reagan's advisors chimes in and informs the president that the USSR still actually relies on a bunch of US proprietary technology in order to do their offshore drilling and difficult drills. In fact, at this time, almost the entire world does, as the US companies are miles ahead of everyone else in this sector. At this period in time, it means that every country that wants to use this cutting-edge technology has to come crawling to the US for it. So Reagan's team comes up with a plan, and a few days later they announce a ban on this cutting-edge oil tech being used by Soviet countries and Soviet companies. And immediately, it has devastating effects on the Soviet economy. The USSR has to shelve a number of its pipeline plans as they can no longer expand them without this technology. Output of oil falls across the entire Soviet Union, and the Soviet offshore oil industry is kind of a mess for a few years. So, the plan appeared to be quite successful, pats on the back all round. But as Reagan's team celebrated, this policy had unintended long and medium term consequences. Yes, the Soviet economy was hurt by the drop in output of oil, but in response to these sanctions, The Soviets diverted huge amounts of scientists and engineers into creating their own version of that technology. In three years' time, the Soviets had an equivalent technology to replace the now unattainable US one. And to the further horror of the US, they were now selling that technology on the open market, and for cheaper than what the American companies were. The US companies, having lost their monopoly in this industry, had to slash their prices in order to compete with the Soviets. And additionally, Countries like Iran, Iraq, and Angola, who the US had been trying to use this oil tech as leverage to get them to curb some of the behaviours, now had a whole new country to get their tech from. Nations like Iraq or Iran no longer had to try and behave in order to receive the cutting edge oil technology. For that, they could now just go to the Soviets for it. So in the short term, these sanctions were effective, they did curb the amount of money heading into the Soviet Union. But in the long term, it opened up a whole slew of additional problems. Now we fast forward to 2022, and we're back in the White House. And this time, China is the global competitor to the United States. The Biden administration wants to find a way to curb the rapid growth of the Chinese military in a period where war seems like it could be more imminent than ever. One advisor suggests microchips and semiconductors, the brains of every bit of technology ranging from microwaves to hypersonic missiles. See, right now, most of these semiconductors and microchips are made by US-friendly companies inside Taiwan, and currently the Chinese military buys their cutting-edge chip technology to put inside their military equipment. So the advisor suggests that if we cut off China's access to these semiconductors' and microchips, it will prevent China from getting the latest technologies and will effectively freeze the military progress in place for a number of years, as Beijing lacks the most crucial bit of technology for any technical progress. And so earlier this month, the Biden administration did that and signed a law that puts sanctions upon all high-end chips that would be considered state-of-the-art from about five years ago and up, from entering China, with the law even going as far as to ban US citizens from working inside Chinese chip manufacturers at risk of losing their citizenship. And in China, this is already having great impacts, and is certain to hurt the Chinese military's modernization. But for how long? Is this policy a brilliant masterstroke to permanently keep China ten years behind the US? Or... Is this a similar situation to the oil technology we talked about earlier on, where we might see temporary gains, but long-term problems? Was this the one huge card the US could have played during a war against China, which they've now played during peacetime? And by playing it in peacetime, has it allowed China enough time to build up their own domestic chip production facilities, meaning that if war does roll around in the future, the US won't have that card to play? Are these chip sanctions a good idea? Well, to answer questions about these chips, their geopolitical impacts, and the technology race roaring over the Taiwan Strait, we turn to our first guest.
0: Part 1. A chip off the old block. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: So the words uh, semiconductors and, and chips are kind of used interchangeably, but I guess if you're being really strict about it, a semiconductor is, is a kind of material that is somewhere between a conductor that you know conducts electricity easily and an insulator that, that sort of doesn't. And semiconductors, often you can control the extent to which they conduct electricity or don't. And semiconductors are kind of the building blocks of microchips. And the best way to think about a microchip is it's a, a very, very kind of tiny calculating machine. If you imagine some some sort of esoteric clockwork machine that, that calculates numbers and you shrink it down to, to absolutely teeny tiny dimensions and into a sort of standardised package, that's what a microchip is. You need semiconductors to to build microchips and then it's the microchips that power anything with with a computer
1: inside it. Tim Cross is the former technology editor at The Economist and is now the editor of International Affairs in the magazine. Tim is one of the sharpest minds when it comes to combining real-world politics and the upcoming developments in the tech industry, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
2: You know, Taiwan was one of the Asian tigers, and as their economy was developing, you know, one of the choices they made was that they wanted to move into this you know, then fairly new market of building microchips. And they sort of started at the low end and, and, and worked their way up. And these days, you know, the the sort of company that everyone talks about is the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, which is, you know, the world's leading contract chip maker and the world's leading chip maker of of, of any kind. Like they have the most advanced technology. They have absolutely enormous scale. Their clients are all these sort of big American companies that these days, all they do is design the chips; They don't actually produce them themselves. So that that's kind of the the sort of domestic factors native to Taiwan. So so TSMC, which got it started in the nineteen nineties, they really pioneered this model of of what's called contract chip making.
1: Can you take us through the chip manufacturing process? How these chips come to be?
2: Back in the old days, it used to be that the the companies were sort of vertically integrated. So they were like car companies. You know, someone in one office would design a chip. They would take the design to the factory. The guys in the factory would produce it, and the sales guys would sell it. And and that's how the company worked. But then over time, that that sort of got harder and harder to do. And this is the other sort of big trend that, that, that underlies all this. So your listeners might be familiar with this idea of Moore's Law. And Moore's Law basically says the amount of stuff, the amount of circuitry you can stuff into a microchip of a given size – Doubles every two years, and what that means in practice is, is chips get better very, very quickly, which is why you know the, the pace of change in computing is 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 so fast. But there's this sort of, kind of joking but kind of not um, thing in the industry called Moore's second law, which says that the cost of building a cutting edge factory doubles every four years. And so as you're as you're shrinking the components that go into these microchips, they started off pretty small, and they've only got sort of more tiny over the years. And these days, you know, a, a, an ordinary microchip might have, you know, tens or even hundreds of billions of, of little tiny, tiny components in it. And making these things has become kind of a sort of black art of, of like applied bleeding edge material science. So we're not quite manipulating matter at the atomic level, but it's not that far off it either. And just just the, the sheer sort of precision and and care with which you need to do this means that the cost of, of building a factory at the cutting edge the cost of keeping up with Moore's law just goes up and up and up and up and up so if you go back to the to say the early 2000s there were probably maybe a couple of dozen companies in the world that had you know these leading edge state-of-the-art chip factories and then over the last 20 years as the costs have gone up and up and up more and more of them have have kind of fallen away and just decided look you know we, we can't afford to pay these ever-increasing prices. And that's what's made TSMC's business model so attractive because they say, look, guys, don't worry about, you know, spending huge amounts of money on these ultra-sophisticated factories. We'll do all that for you. Send us an email, and then we'll send you back a container full of chips in six months' time, essentially, is 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 how TSMC's business model works. And I said at the start that there were maybe, you know, a couple of dozen companies at the cutting edge in, in 2000. These days, if you look at what are called logic chips, which are, the kind of CPUs, the the, the sort of central brains of of a computer system. There are really only three companies left, um, and arguably only two. And those are Intel, Samsung, and TSMC. Um, And I say arguably only two because Intel, which is an American company, the only American company in that list, um, they have been falling off the pace a bit. Uh, they've been off the pace for the last maybe four or five years at this point, and right now the whole company's in, a, in the midst of a, a sort of big change to try and catch up, and it's unclear whether they're going to be able to.
1: We've seen tensions between Beijing and Washington growing for years now, and these chips have always been a huge part of China's new cutting-edge technology, whether it be their jets, or their hypersonic missiles, or their supercomputing. It's one of the main reasons that China's army has become sophisticated enough to become a major player in this area of the world. So why are all at these sanctions now? Why not a decade ago or five years in the future?
2: I think it's a mix of things. I think, you know, the, the, the kind of trial run for what we're seeing now was the action taken against Huawei a few years ago. And, you know, Huawei, I guess it's best known as a manufacturer of smartphones, which it does do. But what really caught the attention of of Donald Trump's administration a few years back was that it's one of or was one of the world's biggest manufacturers of the kind of behind the scenes kit that you need to operate mobile phone networks. And, you know, with this kind of overarching sense that, that there's a sort of big strategic rivalry, kind of brewing and getting more acute between the US and China, the idea that, you know, a Chinese firm might be Building half the world's telecoms networks, and you know, possibly using it to to listen in or or, or spy um, on behalf of, of the Chinese government, was seen as something that they they kind of couldn't tolerate. So. The the, they deployed kind of an early version of the laws that we're seeing now against Huawei, essentially cutting it off from uh, any technology of of US origin, and the results were kind of crippling. So you know, if if you're Huawei, this was terrible. If you're sitting in the White House, you're thinking, oh, hey, this this kind of worked pretty well. So it's partly that you know the first attempt to do this worked well, and I think it's partly also that those those sort of strategic tensions we've mentioned, you know, they haven't gone away, and if anything, they've. They've sort of only got worse. So, you know, the Americans have a weapon, they've seen that it works, and, you know, there's kind of even more enthusiasm for using it now than than there used to be.
1: What a number of people seem to have missed in this is that the US sanctions aren't on all chips. They're limited to just the very cutting edge of semiconductors and microchips, which can be very different to the basic end. The chips inside the guidance system of a hypersonic missile are very different to the ones in the back of my washing machine, for instance. So can you take us through the differences between high and low end chips and what this might mean for high-end Chinese equipment.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And this is, a, this is a, um, a subtlety that often gets lost, I think. So So the chip industry is this weird kind of amalgam. So at the very cutting edge, it's, it's this absolutely you know, technologically crazy money, no object race. And then as soon as you step back from the, the sort of leading edge, it becomes not quite a commodity business, but kind of pretty close to that. And as you say, a lot of the chips that are used um, you know in cars, in washing machines, also even in, in kind of military kit. Are not made on these sort of cutting-edge processes. So, the, the jargon that the industry uses that talks about nanometers, and way back in the day, this actually meant something meaningful. It was like you know you, you could you could examine a microchip with an electron microscope and kind of count the distance between the components, which would be in nanometers and billions of a meter. And so they would talk about you know like, like 90 nanometer technology or 65 nanometer technology, with smaller being better. They still use this terminology, but it's kind of become Sort of detached from the physics now and is kind of a, a sort of semi-meaningless marketing number. But the Americans have decided that that the cutoff should be at 14 nanometer, which was state of the art maybe eight, nine, ten years ago. You know, so people like TSMC are now down to five or three nanometer. And what they're trying to do with that is to limit China's access to the most advanced chips, which are the ones that you use in applications where you need like the absolute most computing power you can get. So that's things like supercomputing and especially it's things like training artificial intelligence models, which is one of the things that they're, they're really worried about. People have been kind of raising now and then, you know, this point that, hey, you know, is it wise to concentrate, you know, all this expertise and all this, this capacity in, in, in kind of one place? It's interesting, though, because if you go back to the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, when, you know, computing and microprocessors were really getting going, they were very much seen as a strategic good by the Americans there. And the Pentagon was like Silicon Valley's biggest customer for a long, long time. But for many years, America had a kind of domestic champion of its own in, in Intel, which was able to kind of keep pace. You know, they they never they in fact set the pace of Moore's law. And never really kind of fell off. It's only in the last kind of five or six years that people have started to worry and, and started to think, well, maybe you know, maybe America doesn't have a domestic champion, or maybe its domestic champion is is, is kind of looking a bit a bit sort of tired and and, and out of sorts, and that sort of magnified the problem in, in, in everyone's mind. And then the rise of China and the the sort of turn, particularly I think under under sort of Xi Jinping, where you've seen a much more kind of assertive, some people would say aggressive foreign policy and a kind of confluence of all those factors has, has meant that you know this is an issue that, that, um, that has kind of risen way up the agenda.
1: So if this industry is so important to almost every other industry there is, why is it being dominated by the 21st largest economy in the world? Why hasn't a big country like the United States or Germany or a country with cheap labour like Vietnam or India managed to capitalise on this industry and build their own versions of TSMC?
2: Yeah, so I, I think this is this is really the 64 billion dollar question, isn't it? And I think in the short term it's going to be very very hard for China to to find alternative sources for this because we talked earlier about how the cost of chip factories has been going up and up and up and that's basically because the sophistication of the equipment that needs to go into them goes up and up and up as you're trying to fiddle with with matter at like, you know, increasingly increasingly tiny scales. And the market for this kind of chip making equipment is really dominated by more than a handful, but not that many firms. Several of them are American. One very important one is European, based in in in, in the Netherlands, uh, and quite a few are based in in Japan. So, assuming that the Dutch and the Japanese kind of go along with the American, um, you know, sanctions on China, which so far they have. If you're China, you have to kind of recreate all this kind of cutting te- cutting edge technology. Um, that is sort of spread across the globe is this incredibly complicated supply chain. Um, So even these companies themselves have have really complicated supply chains. In fact, I just give you an example. um, A few years ago, I visited ASML, the Dutch company, and they make lithography equipment. So the way that you make a chip essentially is that you draw up a a big sort of pattern of what you want your chip to look like. You shine light through this pattern onto light-sensitive material, and that kind of etches the circuitry onto the material and and, and and makes your chip. And as the features get smaller, that becomes, you know, harder and harder to do. You have to do it with like smaller and smaller wavelengths of light and so on. And, you know, ASML has like hundreds of suppliers. The machines that it sells now weigh 180 tons. They're so the size of double-decker buses. And the way they actually create the light to make this work is they drop... Uh, Little droplets of liquid tin, I think it is, about 50 a second through like a vacuum chamber. Blast each droplet twice with a laser to persuade it to emit like ultraviolet light of exactly the right wavelength. Bounce it through a series of mirrors, which are like, they told me that the mirrors are, are sort of so flat that if you scaled them up to the size of Germany... There would be no imperfections more than you know a foot or two high and then you you have to kind of focus that very very tightly onto the bit of the silicon wafer that you're you're sort of trying to etch it's really like mind-bogglingly complicated and then you repeat that for lots of the other steps in the chip manufacturing process and you just have this this colossal kind of unfathomably high-tech industry made up of dozens of tier one suppliers hundreds or thousands of sort of tier two and tier three suppliers And you would almost have to recreate that entire thing within one country which is is going to be a huge task
1: so why are these very high-end chips so important to the chinese military chips like these aren't going to be used in any of the new chinese tanks or used in any of the average soldiers kit so why make such a big deal about this
2: i think that's actually quite a good question because if, if if you look at military gear the army doesn't tend to use the latest and greatest microchips. And partly that's because they can't afford to, because you know, the latest and greatest changes every couple of years, and, and you know, the the lifespan of a, a tank or a fighter jet or something is measured in, in decades. But having said that, there are some applications where they do. So things like avionics and fighter planes, you know, the, the sort of sophisticated radar systems that they have, those get upgraded all the time, and you need a huge amount of processing power to do good avionics. Things like it, it, to simulate nuclear weapons tests. So if you don't have access to supercomputing anymore, you're kind of back to well, maybe we should just blow a few th- of these things up and kind of see how they work. Um, and then the, the the thing that I think is fueling a lot of the anxiety at the moment is is what we've come to call AI. Uh, so you know modern uh, modern versions of AI are basically incredibly complicated statistical models where you train a computer on like enormous piles of data. It learns to recognize patterns in those data and then it can apply it in other ways. So, you know, you can show it a zillion different human faces and then it becomes really good at recognizing human faces to the point that it can pick individuals out of a crowd. You could show it, say, a whole load of pictures of American warships or American fighter planes. And it becomes very, very good at identifying the radar signatures of American warships or American fighter planes. And, you know, maybe this is a way around some of the sort of stealth or observable technology that people have been talking about. You could show you could, you know, feed in data from military exercises and see what you can sort of extract from that. AI is one of these Um, technologies that has potentially hundreds and hundreds of uses. Some of them will sort of probably prove to be military, but it is a technology where the results, as far as we can tell, just keep getting better as you throw more computing power at it. So if there's a sort of ceiling to how much computing power a big modern AI model can, can sort of usefully use, we haven't found it yet. So if you try and cut the Chinese off from those really powerful chips, then you might have an advantage when it comes to deploying AI yourself.
1: So where does China get its high-end chips? If China can't make them at home, do they buy from Taiwan the same way we do?
2: Uh, well, they were buying from Taiwan until sort of pretty recently. And that's one of the questions is, you know to what extent they'll, they'll still be able to. They do have a domestic semiconductor industry. So there's companies like SMIC, for instance, um, which is their, their sort of most technologically advanced uh, chip making firm, they're sort of around the five six years behind TSMC, maybe a bit more. But it's not like the entire. They, they don't sort of have an entire Chinese version of the sort of global supply chain. So SMIC still needs to buy all its kit from you know uh, the Americans, the Dutch, the Japanese. So obviously they have kit already. They, you know they have existing factories, and the Americans can't do much about that. So they can continue to churn out chips. Uh, you know, based on their kind of existing technology. One question is what happens with things like maintenance? What happens when these machines start to break down or start to need, you know, maintenance done to them? Is is is, is that going to start to become a problem for them? The Americans haven't completely cut them off. Uh, most of the, the regulations, you know, they don't say you cannot sell anything to China under any circumstances. They say you need a license. And the assumption is that, you know, if you apply for a license for anything kind of cutting edge, you'll be told no, but maybe... You know, there'll be a market in, in, in selling China, you know, five-year-old technology that, that the Americans don't mind don't mind them having.
1: And in the short and long term, how is this likely to affect the Chinese?
2: So in the short term, I think, well, in the very short term, the impact will be sort of big, but maybe sort of qu- quite limited. They'll have to, you know, the Chinese will be trying to work out now whether they can do substitution, whether they can, you know, substitute some slightly less fancy chips for the the. Um, the cutting edge ones that they can't get hold of. In the medium term, there's this question about whether you know existing chip factories start to break down and it becomes hard to you know replace or service the equipment. In the long term, the big question is you know China has been trying to develop a domestic chip industry supply chain for for decades. It hasn't managed to make it work so far. Is this kind of really aggressive action? Is is that going to really? force them to do it you know force them to to throw unlimited amounts of money at it just just try redouble their efforts and i think no one really knows the answer to that you know the, there are powerful incentives for them to succeed um because you know if it, you need access to this stuff if you want to if you've got kind of superpower ambitions but it's very very hard to do you know the existing semiconductor industry is it's a planetary scale industry and it's just an open question you know no one really knows whether you can you can successfully stuff that into one country and, and, you know, reinvent all these high technologies. Um, But I think, you know, they've got a stronger incentive than they've, they've ever had before to try.
1: There is a worry from some people about China using third party countries to skirt around these sanctions. As an example, having a company in Russia or a company in Myanmar order thousands of these chips for themselves and then ship it across the border into China. So how's the US plan on preventing this from happening?
2: I think it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about um, the actual chips themselves, the sort of end end products, then yes, potentially, and it will be quite hard, maybe to to sort of detect or or to stop. So, um, the chips that a lot of people use to trade these AI models I talk about, I, I just talked about, they're kind of they're very very similar to the chips that power your PlayStation Five uh, or, or or your Xbox or whatever that, that that make all the fancy graphics in modern video games. They're pretty much the same designs just with a kind of couple of tweaks so you know you could maybe see some sort of black market emerging in which uh you know chips ostensibly designed for use in like video game consoles get diverted into china where they're really used to 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 do sort of ai research um but i think the scope of that would probably be limited because you need you know tens of thousands of these things to build a supercomputer and china's going to want kind of more than one supercomputer so you know if myanmar is is posting Orders for like you know twenty thousand cutting edge GPUs every quarter, then you know that's going to be kind of potentially flagged up. I think as as you go kind of bigger, like literally physically bigger, it gets much harder to do. So the um, the chip manufacturing tools that we talked about, the things that people like ASML in the Netherlands and you know Advanced Materials in in the US sell, you know these are these are big like chunky things. So ASML's tools are the size of a bus; they weigh like a couple of hundred tons. Um, They only sell a handful a year at the moment, or a few dozen a year maybe. Um, I think it's going to be much, much harder uh, to to sort of find a way around that. You know, It's just not easy to, to smuggle a 180 ton lithography machine across the border from Myanmar. If Myanmar puts in an order for one, it's going to look really, really suspicious.
1: It only took a few people defecting from the US nuclear weapons program for the Soviets to jump years ahead in their own nuclear weapons program and detonate their own nuclear weapon almost a decade ahead of where they're expected to. When it comes to semiconductors and ships, China is behind at the moment. But if China were to convince one or even 10 of these scientists to defect from Western companies to go work for China, would that be enough to bring Beijing up to where Taiwan currently is?
2: You raise a good point. So a lot of this stuff is intellectual property, but a lot of it is also what you call kind of learning by doing, right? So. Companies like, like sort of TSMC and Samsung and even Intel, although they're sort of they're sort of roughly equal when it comes to the size of the transistors they can produce, each of their processes will be different. So if I'm if I'm a chip designer and my chips are being made by TSMC and I decide I want to go with Samsung instead, I can't just take my design and hand it over to Samsung without kind of tweaking it because it won't work on, on Samsung's process. So there's there's all kinds of like very sort of specialized, I guess you'd, you'd almost call it like, like it's almost like guild style know-how from the sort of medieval times, you know? So you, you, you would have to get enough people to bring all that with you. And then it's a moving target as well. So, you know, suppose you manage to steal the plans for the latest and greatest, you know, TSMC manufacturing process. Great, you have that, but that's only going to be current for kind of two or three years. So, you know, unless you have a kind of domestic industry that can try and keep pace, you know, just the sort of the speed at which the race kind of proceeds is going to be is going to be a big problem. But I think this is something the Americans are aware of because one of the things in the in the law it it, it says that American citizens aren't allowed to work. For these chinese companies either and that's caused like problems all all, all through the industry because there's loads of you know american engineers at all these different companies and they've as i understand it a lot of them have been told at the moment that they just have to kind of see saw contact until legal can work out exactly what what sort of position is so it's it's a threat that the americans are aware of and obviously i think you know they would rather that didn't happen i don't really think you could have you know one engineer or ten engineers take a flight from taipei to beijing and then six months later you know, Beijing has, has, has kind of caught up. I think it's, it, it's too much of, of, of an applied skill to, to kind of happen that quickly.
1: If these sanctions do have the intended effect and it does majorly hamper the Chinese military in progress, is the US likely to expand on these gains and widen the amount of products they apply these sanctions to? Is this just the beginning or probably as far as it goes?
2: The semiconductor industry is probably the the most high-tech industry on, on the entire planet. It really does have a sort of globe-spanning supply chain. There really are these little, these sort of pinch-point monopoly companies without whose products you just can't really get anywhere. And it's going to be interesting how many other industries have those characteristics. If, you know, if they can find one, then maybe this model will work. If you're trying to, uh, you know, something like the automotive industry, there's so much you know knowledge and experience out there and it's so widely disseminated that it'll be much much harder to to sort of crack down on I, so i think there'll be motivation for them to try you know, it's it's it succeeded with Huawei. It, it'll probably succeed this time around as well. So that you know, it'll be a natural thing to say, well, hey, what else are we worried about? What else could we could we try and and do to sort of contain China technologically? And then the other thing I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on is the sort of second prong of this whole strategy. So you know, half of America's strategy is try and contain China technologically. The other half of America's strategy is try and get some advanced manufacturing, advanced chip manufacturing back onto U.S. soil. So they've passed. These, these sort of enormous subsidies in in the Chips Act, uh, a lot of which has gone to Intel. You know, Intel's going to use some of that money to try and catch back up to the cutting edge, that they've persuaded TSMC and Samsung to build chip factories of their own in the United States, you know, and reasonably advanced ones as well. So I think keeping an eye on, on where that goes is going to be interesting because the thing to bear in mind there as well is... is Kind of the lesson of the 1960s and 1970s and so on is that if you subsidize things for strategic reasons like oil or steel or shipbuilding or whatever, you end up with kind of more capacity than, than the market could pay for left to its own devices. And so you have you know, all these steel mills who are producing all this steel, but no one really wants to buy that much steel. So not only do you have to subsidize them to build the factory in the first place you end up having to subsidize them to kind of stay in business constantly so you know this is this is if America's really serious about reshoring like advanced technology this is going to be kind of an open ended check and it's made even worse in the chip industry because you know the state of the art moves on every every 2 years so great TSMC are going to build a reasonably advanced chip factory in the US now. That's great. But in five years' time or 10 years' time, it's not going to be advanced. It's not going to be cutting edge anymore. And if you want them to build another one, maybe you're going to have to open your, your checkbook again. That's the other sort of facet to this strategy. And if America's serious about this, they're going to have to commit to it on like a bipartisan basis. They're going to have to really make it a sort of a center point of their strategic thinking. And they're going to have to be willing to write quite large checks for the foreseeable future to make it happen.
1: So, Washington hopes that with the stroke of a pen, they've effectively capped the growth of the Chinese military for nearly a decade, and possibly even more, with the administration hoping that whilst Beijing scrambles to catch up to where the US is now, the West will continue to double and double and double its computational power, and the technology gap between China and the West will grow expeditiously. So, how is Beijing responding to this? Are they responding by trying to bankrupt US companies? Or could they embargo products like rare earth minerals to try and put the shoe on the other foot? Or does Beijing have some sort of way of fast tracking their own cutting edge chip technology? Well for that, we turn to our second guest.
0: Part 2. The Growing Gap
4: As a starting point, I think that these sanctions were a bit of a surprise in some ways and not a surprise in other ways to everyone who relies on these components in china or to anyone who really watches this space closely globally uh, the broadened export bans have been anticipated for quite some time in other ways i I think that they were a little more creative than people expected In, in particular the parts of the restrictions that went at u.s persons The part that went at the human talent, not just the hardware and not just the export of the technology. And as we'll get into blocking that flow of people or that flow of human knowledge and know how that capability really took things, not just to another level, but another kind of dimensional component to it, if you will. And I think that that probably has China struggling to figure out exactly how far this damage will go and how they would respond.
1: Bob Guterma is the CEO of the China Project, a China-focused news agency specializing in the business, political, and economic analysis of the domestic Chinese markets. There are only a few people in the world who truly understand the internal machinations of the Chinese economy, and Bob is one of those people. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today
4: they probably gamed out all the different export controls that could have happened. They may or may not have gamed out something like what was included in the form of the, the people. There, were, there, there was some creativity exhibited here by the Biden administration that I don't think anyone took for granted ahead of time. And, and that's definitely causing pause and consideration on the China side. Now, back to the part of the broadened export bans that were expected. Because it was anticipated in some shape or form, all the enterprises that relied upon them had been hoarding these chips, which may have led to kind of a pull forward, if you will, to uh, demand for these chips that may then get reflected later on in, in a drop off in demand, depending on how things go, but may also drive uh, short to medium term supply chain tightening that we saw only very recently already in this, in this same market. But there's a lot of fear in China over what will happen once they burn through their inventory. OEMs and ODMs might have difficulty securing new contracts, delivering on their existing sales contracts. And it's already starting to be baked into their earnings in terms of share prices for big tech companies, including companies that have invested heavily in AI and may find their access to GPUs impeded. All these things are already starting to happen, both in the market and behind the scenes. Many companies will redesign around these restrictions by trying to sub in larger node chips that aren't affected by the bans, but that would only be a stopgap measure. The October 7 announcements out of Washington have also lit a real fire. There's no question that China will push even harder now to bridge the gap. And with basically inexhaustible sources of capital and other forms of government support, they're gonna pull out all the stops. And while there's a lot of speculation about whether they can actually close the gap or close the gap fast enough, I wouldn't bet against at least some amount of substantial progress.
1: So what does pulling out all the stops actually mean in terms of Chinese policy? What is Beijing likely to throw at this issue in order to close the gap?
4: What does pulling all the stops out mean? they're gonna pour fuel on the fire without any real consideration of return on investment or whether it's working or not working. It's a binary outcome. And so even if it's quote unquote not working, they're just gonna keep doing it more and more and more and harder and harder and harder. And if these five people can't do it, get five more. We might even let the five people that can't do it keep trying to do it because damn it, we need everybody. But at at the same time, China may or may not have such creativity in their repertoire right now as well. And um, so we're going to find out what it means to pull out all the stops. They're definitely going to do it. though. Whatever they can do, they're going to do Uh, a lot of hawks in particular would probably say that they're going to ramp up industrial espionage efforts, intellectual property theft efforts, et cetera, et cetera. I don't consider myself a hawk, and I won't just say that they're going to try to steal all the technology. And yet, at the same time, why wouldn't they? Uh, It would be hard for me to argue against the people who assert that's how they might go about solving this problem. Their back is against the wall. It is a binary outcome. Time is of the essence. They do view it somewhat existentially and probably rightfully so. So they're going to act out of rational self-interest the way I think any other country would
1: how are the domestic Chinese media and Chinese business community reacting to this news? It's obvious that there'll be problems in the supply chain going forward. And are they more likely to lay the blame at the feet of the government in Beijing or lay the blame at the feet of the Americans?
4: To be completely frank, the past weeks since the announcements came out from Washington have been completely overshadowed by the national people's Congress that we've all read so much about at this point. So, It's been harder than maybe it would have been if this had happened at another time to gauge what the reaction within China will be. As with most things, China has a difficult job to um, let some version of the truth get through, which it inevitably will in most cases through the internet, Uh, yet not to appear weak, like America has landed a hard blow on their chin. And yet also to let enough get through that they can spin it as America uh, unfairly holding them back, China unsurprisingly sees this as final proof that America's real goal is simply to thwart China's rise as a peer competitor and in some way, shape or form for us, the West or America, uh, specifically to see China on its knees, this is always been part of the narrative that they've told about the united states and the west in some ways in general and this plays right into that narrative in many ways now it's you know chicken and egg did we do this because of what they are or are they responding because of what we are you know (laughs) you can have that debate all day long and i think ultimately it's subjective It, it whichever side you're on it's the other person's fault and they started it but you know this this does play into that perception big time. As such, from their side, this has been building for a long time, and in many regards, this isn't even new. From Trump's trade war, which was read in China as a direct response to Beijing's Made in China twenty twenty five plan, to the kneecapping and near death experience of ZTE, um, you know about halfway through the Trump administration to the aggressive moves against Huawei, from chip export bans to Meng Wanzhou's arrest in Canada, to rallying Western uh, countries against Huawei 5G equipment, to the entity listing of companies involved in surveillance tech, to pitifully petty things like the Department of the Interior banning DJI drones, and finally, of course, to the October 7th announcement. So I'm not intending to amplify the Chinese perspective that we are trying to hold them back. Uh, I'm trying to explain how they will see this and they will see this as us unfairly trying to hold them back. Um, not because we see them as a threat, but because we don't want them to become equal. We don't see them as equal and we don't want them to become equal. That's what they see in all of this
1: the Chinese like it to respond with their own version of sanctions, trying to go tit for tat against the Americans in response to this.
4: China has already responded in a way. Look at the composition of the Politburo and the promotion of so many literal rocket scientists with advanced degrees. Look at the rhetoric in Xi's speeches and its focus on expanding China's capacity to innovate For years, uh, the Xi administration has sought to direct China's prodigious scientific and technical talent away from areas like finance and the consumer Internet and toward hard science and deep technology. This is only going to accelerate as China recognizes that this time America's threats of decoupling are very real indeed. Now, whether they will tit for tat retaliate, like during the height of the the Trump trade war, like you tariff this, I tariff that. I don't think so, because, again, the big political meetings in Beijing that just concluded kind of eliminated the uh, simultaneous response style tit for tat. Now, a little bit of time has already passed. They also need to let the dust settle on those political meetings and all the changes that did or or did not (laughs) happen.
1: We're recording this nine days out from the U.S. midterms, so obviously U.S. domestic politics is right on everyone's mind. If we are to see big changes in the makeup of the House and or Senate coming up, do you think we'll see a reversal of this policy? Does China have that sort of lobbying power within the Washington Beltway?
4: China will certainly try to exert pressure on American businesses that are harmed by this decision. And there are many whose revenues are dependent on sales to China. And China will work through diplomatic channels as well. But Beijing doesn't have fancy office suites on K Street. Uh, It will read American politics as well as it can to try and ascertain what politicians might be persuadable. But it knows quite well that the mood on Capitol Hill is anti-China almost without exception. They they, they they know that they'd basically be pushing on a rope if they tried to you know exert influence in the direct way in D.C. You know you you mentioned uh, is this a bipartisan issue at this point. And I, th- I think it has been for many years. I think even, quite frankly, going back into the Trump administration, it was one area that was fairly bipartisan, at least in tone and rhetoric. Maybe both parties weren't quite ready at that time or willing at that time to work together on specific policies or um, bills. But uh, I think they are now. And, and certainly the spirit is there. It at the very least, you can also say and, and with certainty that it would be a political kryptonite in the U.S. to in any way walk back uh, anti-China or at least harsh on China uh, rhetoric. You know, if, if you were a Democrat or a Republican that tried to bust out of the current mood, you would immediately get shot down for being soft on China or or weak on foreign policy. And so even if you wanted to, which I don't think really anyone does, I, I don't think you would.
1: Is there a worry in the US that this may backfire in the medium or long term? That in recent years, China's been chugging along getting its high-end chips from the West, and because of this, the West has maintained their hegemony over the high-end chip sector. But now with these sanctions, we'll likely see China fully kicked into gear in a very serious way. But even though they may suffer in the short term, they might return in the medium or long term as a direct competitor to the United States, meaning that other countries outside of these two will have someone else to go to to escape US sanctions on chips and semiconductors against those countries. That all of this sets China back today, but loses the US and Western hegemony tomorrow.
4: That is certainly a risk that this will force china to innovate what's the saying necessity is the mother of all invention and i think that may play out here with regards to china's semiconductor innovation at the same time i'm not quite banking on that so i'm certainly not sold that that's how this will play out i don't even know if i'm quote unquote worried that that's how it will play out or or that that even is you know particularly probable the longer term impact is partially this even if it's not the worst version of this you know you said that china will develop its own capabilities that rival those of the u.s or taiwan Uh, short of that there is just the reality that the u.s is using and therefore losing for the future whatever leverage it once or maybe still just a little bit has we've played the card essentially a few years from now regardless of whether china's defense industry has new domestic sources of advanced semiconductors or has designed around the export bans using somewhat older silicon the us will know less about chinese weapon systems and be unable to put new pressure on companies there at any future time to dissuade civil military fusion or to punish them in response to their participation in repression, like domestic surveillance and the widespread abuses in Xinjiang. We're playing the card now is the point. I think that the card may be so strong that if we keep, we, the West or America, keep moving fast enough in the direction we're already moving that we can keep the gap at least as wide as it is, if not wider. But the leverage has been played now. And so now everybody's acting independently, you could say. And how that turns out is anyone's guess. But again, I think the current structural forces are not in China's favor.
1: So where does this road lead? Is this the beginning of the US using its economic might to contain the Chinese military growth? Or is this the turning point where China manages to build its own independent military industries? Is this the beginning of an era where countries around the globe will be able to buy the high-end war-winning technology from either the US or from China? That state-of-the-art equipment is no longer the exclusive domain of the US. Which road are we likely to go down? What well, to answer that. We turn to our third guest.
0: Part three.
5: Losing their spark. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan
3: To answer why self-reliance, you might want to go all the way back to Mao, that there are very deep rooted in the CCP system is fear of technological self-reliance, a fearing of relying technologically and militarily on other countries around the world. I think a very scarring experience in the late 1950s, early 60s, when Khrushchev pulled the rug out from under the Chinese nuclear bomb initiative. And that sort of delayed Mao from getting his bomb for a number of years and I think really scarred the system into being very fearful of relying on any other country for anything sort of particularly technological and strategic.
1: Jordan Schneider is a senior analyst at the Rhodium Group, focusing on China's technological rise, U.S.-China tech relations, and the impact of Chinese technology on the broader global economy. Jordan is also the creator of the China Talk podcast, as well as a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: This strain of, of wanting to be self-reliant has ebbed and flowed over the coming decades since Mao, but it's always been in the background. And I think even as Deng during reform and opening was sort of leaning into leaning into having more international economic and technological exchange, the ultimate goal was to upgrade the domestic Chinese technological capacity to one day, you know, be able to be both world class and not reliant on other countries.
1: Beijing imports a lot of things. In fact, they're still net food importers just for the basic staples. So why are semiconductors become such a pivotal issue for the Chinese government?
3: Most countries around the world do not produce leading-edge fabs and are perfectly fine. In Australia, you can buy first-rate iPhone and laptop and get, uh, you know, cloud storage and compute and are perfectly fine to rely on the uh, on the globalized supply chain in the international market to get the chips that you need to power your computers, cell phones, cars, refrigerators, microwaves, what have you. The Chinese system is not comfortable with that and has spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars over the past. Over the past few decades, really, to change that state of play, so semiconductors really unlock the modern economy. And without them, we would be living a life very similar to what our grandparents would be in the in the fifties or sixties. And much and a lot of the, the core innovations that we've been able to um, get to, both in, de- in the developed and developing world, come from Moore's law continuing. Having domestic capacity that's self-reliant means that you have unfettered access to uh, to these semiconductors, which have both inc- enormous economic e- implications as well as military and strategic ones. So the proximate cause of the Biden administration's actions with regards to restricting ex- uh, semiconductor technology going into China was because they have a strong sense that leading edge chips today and where military competition is going tomorrow is going to be very much decided by
1: advanced compute. This isn't the first time the U.S. has put sanctions towards China and Chinese companies. So how do the sanctions that were put on by the Trump administration compare to these sanctions that have been put on by the Biden administration? What have the direct impacts on China been for each of these?
3: The Huawei sanctions were targeted at one company. And later they were expanded, contracted, then expanded back again to ZTE. And towards the end of the administration, he put a a handful of other companies on the list. But the big difference with these Biden uh, regulations is that they're done playing the game of picking companies and putting them on lists. I think the administration got frustrated that you had to deal with shell companies and, you know, folks coming in and out of business. And if you sell to one Chinese company, they could like lease the technology to another one. And they basically said that civil military fusion in China is real. This, uh, again, being the idea that uh, the, the Chinese government can compel any civilian company to share its technology assets, resources with the Chinese military industrial complex. And for that reason, you know, none of these firms within China we can trust to sell technology that will allow them to fabricate on the leading edge. So the impact is much more dramatic than just sort of tanking one firm. Instead, what the Chinese, what the what the Biden administration has done with these regulations is try to bend the trajectory of an entire industry.
1: Chinese companies do have laws that stipulate they have to hand over any technology or IP to the Chinese government upon request. But to be fair, the U.S. also has laws for companies like Facebook, where they can be compelled to hand over user data upon request. Can you take us through how the IP and technology laws in China? compared to those of the US when it comes to this particular issue.
3: Oh, I mean, totally. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. I mean, I think America industri- invented the phrase "the military-industrial complex," and this is something, of course, that President Eisenhower warned about uh, as he was as he was leaving the presidency. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it would be really weird if a great power would not have its civilian companies cooperate in one way or another with its military-industrial establishment. But the fact is that the U.S. government now sees China as a strategic competitor and is following down the logic. Training where if you accept that, that the US is in a sort of decade plus long competition, struggle, Cold War, however you want to define it, that it should be taking steps to do whatever it can to preserve its technological edge.
1: Building a semiconductor industry onshore in China was meant to be part of the Made in China 2025 project, which was announced in 2015. How successful has this initiative been so far inside China and with all of China's wealth, Why haven't they been able to pull this off in the last seven years?
3: It has given them an industry. There are a lot of fabs that are pumping out chips in China. It just hasn't brought them to the leading edge. And I think it hasn't because this is the hardest thing for anyone to do. Uh, and these are multi-decade projects that uh, sort of the Japanese did, the Taiwanese did, uh, the South Koreans did. In in every other country in the world that's attempted to do this, you've seen a lot of subsidies and a sort of very long multi-decade climb up the value chain. And you know, I think all things considered, um, it's 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 actually reasonably impressive what what mainland China has done. And you know, had the had the U.S. not put on these restrictions, I, I think it wouldn't have been inconceivable to see. The likes of YMTC compete at a one-to-one basis with leading memory manufacturers, and the same goes with SMIC and logic chip makers But the fact that the U.S. government still does have these choke points and is now decided to employ them makes their path incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to stay on the technological trajectory that they were able to uh, develop into over the past decade or two.
1: Until recently, a lot of the talks around chips and semiconductors were centered around Taiwan and the Chinese calls for an invasion of the island. The idea being that with the West having all their chips based here, then an invasion of Taiwan would allow Beijing to implement a similar kind of sanctions around chips and semiconductors, but in this case, back at the US. How much do you think the chip issue plays into Beijing's calculations around an invasion of Taiwan?
3: First, I think the the PRC wanted to take back Taiwan, you know, starting in 1949, way before they had um, uh, microelectronics. And I think even if they didn't have this ecosystem, uh, it would still be something in the kind of CCP bloodstream to, um, you know, make sure that there is one China. The idea that a Taiwan blockade or invasion would rebound positively on the Chinese semiconductor ecosystem is a complete red herring. First off, in any war, I think it's fair to say that the Taiwanese semiconductor ecosystem would be taken offline and probably for years and years to come. These fabs are tuned to such a precise degree that they're set far away from highways and airports because that level of disturbance can throw off your yields. Now, if there are bombs going off in your country, I'm pretty sure that you're not gonna get through this sort of thing unscathed. The second thing that I think it's, it's important to recognize is that Taiwan, Plus, mainland China does not equal a self-sufficient semiconductor ecosystem. The Taiwanese semiconductor ecosystem grew and developed because it specialized and is part of this magical global supply chain. The last thing I want to talk about is talent. So, um, it, 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 aside from like the physical plants that all of these that Taiwan has built out over the years, it is the human capital, it is the knowledge of Taiwanese engineers that makes these places run. If you're still in Taiwan now and you're a, and you're a serious electrical engineer, um, it's safe to say that you've been offered you know two x or three x your salary to work on the mainland. So for whatever reason, you. Uh, th- this sort of group of talent has turned down that offer to work for a chinese firm. Now, if TSMC all of a sudden like turns into a, you know, chinese SOE, I can't imagine those folks are going to be super excited to show up and work at any day and the amount of brain drain you'll see from the island after a, you know, takeover of some kind. I have to expect would permanently scar whatever's left of the Taiwanese semiconductor ecosystem.
1: Do you think this is as intense as this is going to get? Or this is just the beginning of the U.S. doing what they can to strangle the Chinese out of certain markets.
3: I think five six years from now, we will absolutely not see uh, leading edge fabs uh, manufacturing at scale in mainland China without the use of U.S. technology. Now, what happens to the lagging edge is very much is very much up in the air. For now, the the Biden administration has said that you can still help Chinese firms upgrade and, you know, develop up to, you know, up to up to uh, what they define as the frontier technology. But uh, a subsequent administration may stop that. And even if they decide to stop that, the Chinese firms may be able to do that much, at least without foreign support. It's still very much an open question to me what role the Chinese semiconductor ecosystem is going to play in the global economy five, six years from
5: now.
1: these sanctions on chips will almost certainly be one of the biggest issues the Chinese military will ever face. See, until recently, the Chinese military went with a quantity of equality doctrine. In summary, it doesn't matter if the US takes out Chinese tanks at a 5 to 1 ratio, because the Chinese can build 10 for every one US tank. But that's been recently changing, and China's been majorly restructuring its military to become a quality competitor with the US. The Chinese soldiers and US soldiers are beginning to fight on a fairly even ground. But without these latest chips, a lot of that may go out the window. So are we about to see the Chinese military's progress frozen in place, or even take major backward steps? Or will the Chinese military return to a quantity of equality doctrine? Well, to talk about that, we it to our final guest.
0: Part 4. Conducting the Next War
6: Well, the semiconductor question is becoming a bigger issue now for several reasons. First is that more than ever before, chip production is concentrated in the hands of a couple of countries and a small number of countries. And in particular, Taiwan produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips, which makes them crucial not only for the tech industry, but also for the global economy in general. The, The second factor that's impacting the importance of this industry now is that the status of Taiwan is uh, more in question than it's been in several decades, because the military balance in the Taiwan Straits has shifted dramatically in China's favor as China's built up its military capabilities and the US largely hasn't. And so it's becoming more plausible to imagine ways that China might use its military power to coerce or even to attack uh, Taiwan, thereby putting into question all all of the chips that Taiwan produces. And the third aspect, which is related, is that one of the key US strategies to stop the deterioration of the uh, the military balance in the Taiwan Straits is to double down on use of computing power in US military systems. And so the US is betting that by trying to restrain China's ability to produce advanced computing power and buying just trying to supercharge chip production in the US, The U.S. military will be able to adopt more computing intensive military systems over the coming decade and thereby have a qualitative advantage over Chinese forces that will counteract the quantitative advantage that Chinese forces currently have. So the U.S. is betting on semiconductors to sustain its military advantage, even as many of the semiconductors that the U.S. military relies on are produced in Taiwan uh, as the status of Taiwan becomes more precarious by the day.
1: Chris Miller is the Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, as well as the co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. He's also the Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and the author of the best-selling book, Chip War, all about the competition between Washington and Beijing over microchips and semiconductors. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today.
6: Well, the first thing to say is that prior U.S. controls were primarily focused on stopping Chinese firms from using semiconductors for military systems. Um, There were a number of companies that were thought to have direct ties to the Chinese military that were uh, banned from acquiring certain types of technology. And in general, uh, there were limits on the ability of Americans to transfer chips that would uh, have military utility. But that system didn't work because once chips entered China, it was impossible for the US to police where they actually went. And so the US has shifted rather from blacklisting certain companies to a much broader strategy of trying to restrain all of China's technological advantages, because it believes that's the only way uh, that China's uh, t- progress can be slowed and that the US can regain a, a sizable technological advantage. That's the first shift. The second shift, is that to do this the us is not only targeting the most advanced technologies but also a a broader array of cutting edge technologies now there's a broad set of chip making technologies and chips that are not affected things that are over a decade old for example but anything that's close to the cutting edge the us is cutting off access from whether it's the software tools you need to design advanced chips the machine tools you need to produce them or even the ability of american citizens to work at chinese chip firms using this technology. So it's a much broader um, effort to slow any progress towards cutting edge ships in China than we saw previously.
1: Is the US likely to expand these restrictions in other countries like Russia as well, or is this specifically just something directed toward China?
6: There already are a fair amount of limits on Russian shipmaking technology, but the reality is that Russia's so far behind, uh, they're far less significant than the controls on China. Russia's ship industry is over two decades behind the cutting edge. Its volume is tiny and its capabilities are going to be severely impacted by the war and the sanctions that broke out earlier this year. Whereas China's a relatively big player in the chip industry and it's in particular a big buyer of chips that it then puts in electronic devices like uh, smartphones or computers. Today, China spends as much money importing chips as it spends importing oil, so it's a really substantial player, which is why these controls are going to have a big impact not only on China, but also on the broader structure of the world chip industry.
1: So what stops China from getting someone like a Vietnamese subsidiary company to order all of the chips that China needs and then send it across the border, therefore evading the US sanctions?
6: Well, that will be uh, an enforcement challenge, and certainly we should expect some of that to happen. Um, But I think we also should expect that enforcement is not impossible. The reality is that the number of use cases for large numbers of the most advanced chips in most countries is pretty limited. We're talking right now about chips that go into vast data centers of the type that are assembled by Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services. So many companies, many countries simply don't have data centers of this scale. And if they started importing large numbers of these advanced chips, it would be a pretty clear red flag. In addition to that, these data centers are large, they're fairly easy to identify, and so there's a fair amount of visibility uh, into uh, what actually is being undertaken inside of them. So I think enforcement will be an issue, it will be a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And I, I suspect we'll find that China won't find these controls to be particularly leaky uh, and will find that they impose real challenges to China's ability to upgrade uh, towards more advanced computing applications.
1: So let's say for the sake of the argument, Washington wakes up tomorrow morning and finds that the government in Myanmar has placed an order for 40,000 of the most advanced chips. What is Washington's response to that likely to be?
6: Well, there would be uh, likely either prosecutions or sanctions against the intermediary firms that were engaged in that. There would be pressure on the Myanmar government to seize or to at least stop future import of those type of chips. There would be pressure on the company that made the chips stop selling to that actor. And if you think about where these batch chips are coming from, there's only a couple of companies in the world, in many cases, just one company in the world that can produce them. And so because production is so concentrated, enforcement challenges aren't easy, but they're not impossible either.
1: So we spent the majority of this episode talking about the high end of the market, but what about the low end, the low grade chips you'd see in the back of a washing machine, for example? How does China compare to Taiwan and the US in this low end of the spectrum?
6: China is not far behind in in, when it comes to simple chips and for the type of um, semiconductors you need in a washing machine or a microwave or even many chips inside of a automobile China is perfectly capable of producing them. uh, domestically, the places where China struggles are advanced processor chips and advanced memory chips of the type that you'd have in a PC in a smartphone and especially in the most advanced data centers that's where China is really critically reliant on importing chips from abroad.
1: If you look at a company like TSMC, the largest chip manufacturer in Taiwan, what percentage of their profits come from these low-end chips, the chips where they're competing directly with China, as compared to the high-end chips where China now been sanctioned?
6: If you look at TSMC's revenue, and it varies year by year, but around half or so of TSMC sales come from the most advanced or the second most advanced uh, process node of chips, so chips using the most complex manufacturing process that TSMC has. And in terms of the customers that TSMC will sell to, it's largely uh, U.S. chip firms. So NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, now now increasingly Intel will be a big uh, TSMC customer. So there's a small number of firms that will be buying TSMC's most advanced chips, at least uh, in the early stage of each new process node. And the use case for most of these chips will be consumer devices and cloud computing. Smartphones, PCs, and data centers uh, make up the majority of TSMC's Uh, chip sales. And that's true as technology progresses. Every new uh, level of uh, chip making technology will enable a new type of data center chip, a new level of smartphone chip, and and the same for uh, PCs.
1: When it comes to the rare earth industry, China managed to gain control of that sector by selling their rare earths at half the price of what the US was for long enough that the U.S. companies went bankrupt and then China consolidated the market. If China were to try a similar tactic in the low end of the chip market, would companies like TSMC be able to withstand that in the long term?
6: So if you look at the cutting edge where China can't compete, that's also where the leading chip makers make most of their money. So the leading chip makers are relatively insulated from the risk that China does heavily subsidize low end chips in the way you described. But I think when you look at Western companies that are producing at the mid to low end, they're absolutely at risk of that exact dynamic. So it's not gonna be relevant for the main processors and smartphones or for data centers, but for chips and automobiles, for example, or chips and dishwashers and microwaves, that's that is a part of the market where we should expect to see a lot more Chinese production coming online. And then because of that a lot more debate in the West about uh, whether we ought to allow uh, imports of Chinese chips because they'll be produced thanks to government subsidies at uh, prices far below existing firms. But that's not going to be relevant at the cutting edge. That's only relevant to firms that are producing these types of lagging edge chips.
1: China's prowess in the South China Sea has been growing for decades now, and Sino-American tension is nothing new. So why hasn't the US been making more efforts to try and move these chip manufacturers onto U.S. shores, where they aren't in range of Chinese bombers.
6: Earlier this year, the U.S. did pass the Chips and Sciences Act, which is going to do exactly that, to incentivize the manufacturing of more advanced chips in the United States. And this will have an impact. It will increase um, the... The number of facilities that Intel, TSMC, and Samsung build in the U.S., though the impact won't be dramatic and will still be uh, quite reliant on production in Taiwan, there's two big challenges for diversifying away from Taiwan. The first is cost. A single advanced chip-making facility can cost $20 billion. So it's hugely expensive to change the geography of where chips are being produced. And the second challenge, which is related, is that you need a very specialized workforce to make advanced chips. So there are a lot of smart people in Switzerland, but there's no semiconductor industry. And so the likelihood that you're going to be able to set up a competitive chip making facility there is close to zero. There there certainly has been over the past decade or so a fair number of U.S. trained, Taiwan trained, Japan trained, Um, semiconductor engineers and executives who uh, moved to China to work in the Chinese chip industry. But there's also been a a similar flow, probably larger in scale in the opposite direction of of Chinese chip engineers often trained abroad who work abroad as well. Right now, there are a number of uh, new factors that are reshaping the labor market. One is China's economic slowdown and the zero COVID policies, which are making it less attractive to Uh, work in China. Two is the new wave of US restrictions that prohibit American citizens or green card holders from working at a number of Chinese chip firms, which forces relevant individuals to choose either to leave their job or to give up their citizenship. Uh, or a green card, and so we're we're seeing a whole lot of change right now in the labor market. Uh, and I think it's it's actually difficult to to predict in five years time uh, what the labor market dynamic will look like. To what extent we continue to see some back and forth between Chinese chip industries and the rest of the world, or whether actually China's chip industry is really fairly segmented off from uh, the rest of the international chip industry because both pressure from Washington and pressure from Beijing.
1: Is there a worry that these sanctions will temporarily hurt the Chinese, but will spur them on to catch up in the medium to long term, putting them in a better position in the future?
6: I think that worry exists, but I think the timeline is is almost certainly longer than, than five or six years for, for two reasons. First off, there's no sector of the economy where the manufacturing challenges are more complex than chip making. We just think of an iPhone chip, Uh, the main chip on an iPhone, of which there are actually many chips, the main chip will have 15 billion transistors carved into it, each one of which is smaller than the size of a virus. This is manufacturing with the most extreme precision uh, that any industry has demanded before. So it's just really, really tough to make progress. And if you look at China's immense subsidies over the past decade or so, they've made very limited progress relative to the amount of money they poured in. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is that trying to catch up to the cutting edge is very hard because the cutting edge keeps moving ahead very quickly most industries see their quality of product improved by a couple of percentage points at best a year but because of moore's law the chip industry races forward in a way that creates the doubling of computing power on the most advanced chips each year so even if china after a decade catches up to where the rest of the world is today that will still be far behind where the rest of the world is in a decade. And that dynamic of exponential growth rates makes the chip industry very, very different from most of the rest of the economy because no other part of the economy improves with exponential rates. Planes don't fly twice as fast every two years. Sandwiches don't taste twice as good every two years. Oil pipelines don't transit twice as much oil at the same price every two years, but chips do double in terms of their computing capacity. And so catching up is just an extraordinary challenge when the industry is racing forward at the rate that it has for the past half century.
1: These fabs, the machines that make the chips, how movable are they? If we have a situation like we saw in January where Biden was warning for about three weeks beforehand that Russia was about to invade Ukraine, could these companies simply pick up these machines and then plonk them back down in the US in a few weeks' time? Or frankly, they'd be doomed to suffer through the invasion.
6: The equipment in fabs is Ultra precise and very hard to move. It takes multiple 747s to move just one type of equipment, the ultraviolet, the extreme ultraviolet lithography equipment inside of an advanced fab. And there's lots of different types of equipment that must be moved. In addition, you need the personnel inside uh, the fab, without which the facility can't operate. And the idea that it's plausible to imagine a large scale moving of equipment and personnel outside of Taiwan. In the early stages of war when we know it's coming but before it's actually started uh, just seems highly unrealistic um, the reality is that taiwan probably wouldn't let the equipment leave the country uh, if a war looked plausible but still uncertain and once the war started uh, it seems hard to imagine that as we're struggling to resupply taiwan with food and with oil and with munitions that we're going to expend effort uh, trying to to extract um, uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment uh, with poorly defended 747s. I just don't think that's a realistic scenario, which is why I don't think we've worried nearly enough about what would happen if we lost access to that chip-making capacity.
1: What if Biden were to expand these sanctions to wall chips, that tomorrow morning Taiwan refuses to sell any sort of microchips to the Chinese? What is the immediate impact on the global markets if that decision is taken?
6: Well, most of the chips that Taiwan sells to China are then assembled into goods that are exported to the rest of the world. So, for example, um, almost all iPhones are made in China. So chips come from Taiwan, they go to China, but then iPhones are sent around the world. So if Taiwan stopped sending chips to China, China would be unable to produce the electronic goods on which the the rest of the world depends. Uh, So that alone would have a dramatic economic impact, so big that Taiwan almost certainly wouldn't do it. Uh, so the reality is that the supply chains are so complex and interdependent that efforts to meddle with them are very risky uh, because political leaders often don't fully understand the impacts that their moves uh, will have. And because the semiconductor supply chain is at the core of so many other supply chains, from autos to uh, household appliances to technological goods, there's extraordinary risk that even seemingly small moves could have a really dramatic effect on our ability to procure the chips that we need
1: there was a major push from the Indian government a few years ago for them to get into the chip manufacturing industry. How successful have the Indians been in this industry? And do you think they'll play a bigger role going forward?
6: It'll be a challenge, I think, for India to play a a big role in chip fabrication. But I think in chip design, India's got a great base from which to build. There are actually more chip designers in India than any other country uh, in the world. Um, And that is a sector that India's got experience in and that Uh, I think India really has a fair amount of potential to grow its position in. But if I were advising the Indian government, I would say, be cautious about the amount of money you put into fabrication. It's an expensive business. It's already very competitive. TSMC does a very good job at it. Probably better off focusing on places where India already has comparative advantages.
1: So depending on who you ask, China is either the first or second largest economy in the world. So what is standing in the way of them actually being able to build their own TSMC?
6: Well, the technology is just very hard, and catching up to Taiwan not only means learning to do what the Taiwanese can do uh, with regard to using machines in the most complex and sophisticated fashion, but also acquiring the machines that Taiwan can access that China can't access. So China, if it wants to do advanced chip making domestically, it needs to domesticate the software, domesticate the chip design capabilities, domesticate the machine tools, uh, domesticate the Ultra purified chemicals and gases that are needed in chip making, domesticate the silicon wafer uh, process, uh, and then learn how to fabricate it all the way the Taiwanese do. Uh, And the reality is that's just very, very difficult. The uh, complexity of these processes is immense. It's been honed by just a tiny number of companies uh, over the past several of decades. And the Taiwanese certainly can't do it alone. And so even if the Chinese have uh, several times as much money to spend, the reality is it's going to be very, very difficult to try to replicate the entire supply chain inside of China, especially given that the new controls that are in place not only target uh, Chinese chip making firms and not only target the firms in China that make uh, the equipment needed to make advanced chips, but they also ban the supply of component parts to any company that wants to make advanced chip making equipment inside of China. And so to think about what that means, if you look at the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines uh, that are used uh, in advanced chip making processes in Taiwan and elsewhere in the world, these machines have hundreds of thousands of components inside. And it's now illegal for uh, any U.S. firm to produce any of the components for a comparable project inside of China. So sourcing all of this domestically is just going to be extraordinarily difficult given that the rest of the world relies on an ultra-specialized international supply chain to do it. So it's not simply a question of money. It's going to take money, a lot of time uh, and a fair amount of luck, I think, if China is to make any progress.
1: Do you think these moves by the Biden administration have gone far enough or do you think they should go further with them?
6: If you ask yourself, what is the Biden administration trying to accomplish? What their goal is, is to reduce the deterioration of the US military position in East Asia. Over the past several decades, the buildup of Chinese, China's military has uh, really substantially swung the military balance uh, towards China's direction. And it's abundantly clear now that China is already building and will continue to build more ships, more planes, more missiles, more drones than the US. And so the US has to, if it wants to keep its military edge in Asia, try to keep a qualitative advantage over the Chinese that will offset its quantitative disadvantage. Then the next question is, well, what types of qualitative advantages does the US have over China? And in most types of manufacturing, it's not clear the US has any. China's manufacturing superpower, it can um, make... Uh, many types of uh, equipment at high levels of quality. But one place where the U.S. clearly has an advantage is in the production of computing power. And as defense planners in both Beijing and Washington think about next generation military systems, they're envisioning more autonomous systems, more signals processing, more sensors, more communication bandwidth, and all that requires more semiconductors. And so I think the U.S. is betting that military power in the future will be defined by computing power, computing power requires advanced semiconductors and advanced semiconductors are one of the few technological edges that the US still very durably retains vis-a-vis China. And so the success of this policy will be measured in 10 years time, if the qualitative advantage of US systems, thanks to their improved access to computing power grows vis-a-vis what the Chinese military is able to field. That's the policy goal and so we'll have to measure success based on whether that pans out.
1: And my final question is, do you think this will permanently blunt China's military rise in the region, or are we simply just kicking the can down the road and prioritizing short-term gains?
6: Well, we should certainly expect the Chinese government to keep trying to build up its military capabilities, but if in 10 years' time the US military has access to computing power that is uh, multiple times more sophisticated and advanced than China's, I think that will be quite plausibly have an important impact on military capabilities. If you look at how militaries have changed over the past half century, they become more and more reliant on computing power. And so insofar as that trend continues over the next decade, I think we ought to assume that whichever country is able to produce the most advanced computing and access it for their military uh, will have a qualitative edge
1: This may well be one of the most historically consequential bills passed by the Biden administration, and it's already having major impacts across the Chinese technological sector, and will almost certainly become a long-term anchor upon the technological trajectory of the Chinese military. It's a hell of a card to play, but now it's been played. This card here is pretty much as far as the Biden administration can go. You see, if they were to expand the chip sanctions further, then you're going to get into iPhone and PlayStation territory, something that the American consumer is likely to balk at. And additionally, now that that card has been played, China can't kick the can any further down the road. Before this, they could keep putting effort into their chip programs, but it's not priority one, as there were still chips coming over from the facilities in Taiwan. But now the production of these chips is priority one for Beijing. The clock has started as every day that China doesn't have these microchips, they are falling exponentially further behind the United States. In fact, because of these sanctions, quite a lot of China's most cutting-edge missiles and technology will either have to scavenge chips from elsewhere or rely on other technologies or shelve production for the year. If China and the US were at war, this would be a devastating move to their supply chains. One, two, three years of no new cutting-edge missiles is devastating but it might be worth it if it means that if war does break out in, let's say, 2040, the US doesn't have this major card to play anymore. In fact, if the Chinese manage to build a domestic manufacturing sector for these microchips, they won't be able to play that card with anyone, as it would be pretty hard for the US to threaten someone like Iran that they won't sell them chips anymore if they know China would be more than happy to as soon as they hang up that phone. So is it good policy or is it bad policy? Personally, I think it's still too early to tell and I realised that even Reagan's disastrous gambit in the Soviets looked like a winner for the first few years. Although it must be said that oil technology doesn't grow at the exponential rate that ships do. All I know for sure is that this will have major implications for any and all of China's regional ambitions, and that this has been a major blow to the Chinese military's modernization. and that it was all achieved without firing a shot or sinking a ship. With one simple stroke of a pen, the US has begun chipping away, At China's future prospects. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. We actually fast tracked this piece through as it was such huge region shifting news that, frankly, even we wanted to get an idea of just how much this would impact the regional military growth of China going forward. But I'm very sure it won't be the last time we cover this particular issue. Speaking of big regional shifts though, you may have seen a few weeks ago that we launched our five-part mini-series, The Green Line, focusing on the near-term security implications of climate change, with part one looking at how the United States military is preparing for climate change, and part two focusing on the Chinese military's preparation for climate change. It has been a thoroughly fascinating series to put together, and we'll be dropping part three of the series, Water Wars, next week in the same feed you would have found this clip. But if you want to keep up to date with everything going on here at the red line, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok, at the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help myself and the team keep the show going. And speaking of our Patreons. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Igor Stavchansky, who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. There is no way we'd be able to keep this show going at the production levels we do without the support of our amazing Patreons like Igor. So if you want to get access to the Patreon-only content, or you feel you can spare a couple of dollars a week, we'd greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on the geopolitics of semiconductors and microchips is all thanks to you, Igor. Cheers, mate. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, by this week's guest, Chris Miller. And we couldn't ask for a better book on this subject. And with it only being released three weeks ago, it's about as up-to-date as it could possibly be. The second is Deciphering China's Microchip Industry, by Fang Chen, for a Chinese perspective on this issue. And the third is The United States vs. China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership, by Fred Bergston, for a better look at the wider Sino-American competition. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Tim Cross, Bob Guterma, Jordan Schneider, and Chris Miller. All of you made your schedules incredibly flexible this week to help us get this through so quickly. And there is no way we could have gone from the research phase to releasing this episode within two weeks without the help of these people. So thanks so much for being flexible and helping us out this week. I also want to say thanks to my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniel Isabella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. These people are the reason that Redline keeps kicking the goals they do, and I'm incredibly lucky to have such a great team behind the show. The Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. And the Green Line will be back next week. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and The Red Line Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization, and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. RedlinePodcast.com. <music>